0: Well, welcome, listeners. Uh, whether this is your first time or whether you have been following me this entire time, maybe even from the beginning in every um, podcast series that I've done, right now we are on this apologetic series, and we are doing segment sixteen today. And um, this is one in Philippians four twelve that I think is um, one that gets abused all too often as. What usually happens is we take a verse and we want it to mean something and maybe our flesh wants it to mean something but our spirit doesn't and we don't really properly think it through to the end. I see this all the time um, and when I say all the time, I mean all the time. If people and what they say were to actually ex- um, extend it out to its furthest length as they dissect the scriptures and teach the scriptures They would understand how foolish it sounds and even how contradictory it sounds to things. And I don't have time to get into some of the examples. This one alone will be kind of an example, but here's the issue with a lot of these verses. When flesh gets involved in our interpretation of scripture, I'm going to say probably ten times out of ten we're going to get the wrong interpretation. And when we don't understand the fullness of the text, this is why I always say that every scripture must be taken in light of the passage, in light of the chapter, in light of the book, in light of the New Testament, in light of the entirety of scripture. If you don't have all the puzzle pieces flipped over and you're not trying to understand a verse in the full light, as somebody that I highly respect tells me, oftentimes scripture is not contradictory, it's complementary. If you are not trying to understand the text in light of the fullness of the text, it is highly likely that you will misinterpret something, especially if your flesh wants it to be misinterpreted. And this will make sense as we continue on in this, as oftentimes it does. This is a preemptive statement that I'm making because I want you to understand that oftentimes, if not all the time, when the flesh gets a hold of your mind or your heart as you're reading the text, probably 10 times out of 10 you're going to come away with a wrong interpretation so let's read what is the verse in this apologetic series because apologetics is essentially apology is going to be something in which you are taking the verse and expounding upon it using the text to prove the text and so we're going to look at scripture as a whole and see what scripture teaches and so I'm going to I actually just thought of something, so I want to write it down to make sure that I don't forget about it. um, To try to break down something for you guys. We're going to go through, we're going to look at this. first. uh, Philippians 4.12, here's what he says. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And this passage is is oftentimes referenced by, you know, really many people, but I think that the majority of it is going to be kind of funneled towards the health, wealth, prosperity gospel, in which people are saying, hey, you know what? We need to just be content, but praise God that I'm in the abundance category, that I've got the million-dollar home, and I've got the million-dollar jet, and I've got the million-dollar this, and I drive the, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollar car because god has just blessed me and praise god that i'm in the camp of not being in lack or being in plenty or uh uh, being in in a place of hunger but i'm actually in the place of abundance because god has blessed me is that really what paul is talking about here is he really like do we really think that the abundance that he's referencing as he talks about in two different times saying imitate me as I imitate Christ. Do we really think that Christ lived in abundance? Like have have you really studied out the life of Paul? Have you really studied out the life of Jesus who commands his followers to forsake the things of this world and to live a simple life? bearing a cross of self-denial on their shoulders. That doesn't sound like prosperous luxury and self-indulgence. It doesn't sound like abounding in abundance of the things that this world has to offer. Paul makes it very clear. He oftentimes, throughout almost all of his letters, talk about how his eyes are on things above. That his affections are set towards the things that are on high in heaven. That this is not his home. That he might be a sojourner, he might be an alien here, but his treasure is in heaven. And that's where he longs to be. And in every letter, Paul talks about the persecutions, the trials, and the sufferings of this life. There's a reason why in Revelation 20 4, it says that there's going to come a time where God's going to wipe away every tear. Death will be no more. Pain will be no more. Suffering will be no more. Mourning will be no more. The hardships of this life will be no more. That doesn't sound like it was the easy road that he said that followers of Christ will follow. In fact, doesn't Jesus say that in the gospel accounts? That the way that leads to destruction, and I want you to pay very close attention to this because what I'm breaking down is the concept between plenty and abundance. I'm going to break that down for you in just a second of what I believe Paul is referencing in light of the fullness of the text. I don't believe that abounding and abundance is referencing the self-indulgent, luxurious lifestyle in which I'm just blessed of God and he's given me all that my heart could desire. That he's let me live at large in this life. That I'm having my best life now as a Joel Osteen would state. I don't believe that's what he means by abundance. And I'm going to show you that and break it down. And how in verse 11 he actually categorizes and contextualizes what this passage is about. It's about being in need and not being in need. It's kind of like the concept of how pastors today are supposed to. They have a right to not muzzle the ox when he treads out the grain. Let me just... Talk about that just briefly for a, for a brief second. We have in America today made that giving them a large salary, giving them a, a parsonage or a house to live in, giving them vacation time, giving them um, you know gas money and this. And an average starting salary of many pastors today in America of a small church is starting at around $50,000. Let me just tell you, I have a family of 11. 11 kids, 13 people total in our family. And I make roughly $20,000 a year. And I support my family just fine. Do we have to sacrifice? Absolutely. Do we have to live simply? Absolutely. But I support my family just fine. So I cannot even fathom having your house paid for, getting a $50,000 salary, getting time um, paid vacation. I can't even fathom that. I've been... In the category of making the 100,000K. I've been in the category of having a lot of excess and a lot of wealth coming into my life. And I can tell you that my life, my faith, was not strong. And so we're going to break down the text. We're going to see exactly what Paul is going to be talking about here. But I want you to ask yourself the question, how did Jesus live? And then I want you to ask yourself the question as you study through the life of Paul. How did Paul live? And if there's no ability to relate that Jesus and Paul lived a luxurious life in any capacity, then we cannot state that Paul is saying, hey, I've learned how to abound and how to have excess in this life. I've learned how to just be content with that. Rather, as I read 10 through 12, I want you guys to understand that contextually, Paul is stating being in need, and not being in need. And as I was going to talk about before I kind of got carried away on what the pastor's salary was. Um, an ox should not be muzzled as he treads out the grain. It's An Old Testament law that's actually um, pointing forward to a pastor. or To somebody who's going to be shepherding a flock. Or somebody who's going to be being the laborer within the church. That they have a right to be able to have their needs provided for. We've just taken it to a whole nother level. And I think Paul is saying the exact same thing here. We need to learn how to be content when our needs, not our wants, but our needs are provided for or even when we're without and we don't know how they're even going to come. We need to learn to trust the Lord in each situation. In no way do I believe that Paul is referencing luxury and self-indulgence and we're going to break that down here in a second. So that was a rather long preemptive statement with some things for you guys to think about as a carrying device as we go through this. Philippians four ten through 12. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Basically meaning that they were concerned for Paul, but they themselves as the church, they didn't have the means to be able to provide for him, which was very common amongst them. You can go look in 2 Corinthians 8. He talks about the churches in, in uh, Corinth in, uh, in Corinth who wanted to help in Macedonia. It says, you, you've heard of the church in Macedonia, how in their extreme poverty, there was a wealth of abundance that they gave because they gave well above their means because they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to man. And it was, they were in extreme poverty and hardships. So it was a common thing that the church didn't have a whole lot of financial ability to be able to leverage in serving people. Because they themselves weren't concerned about storing up treasures here in this life. But they gave sacrificially and abundantly. And if they had if they had anything that was of excess, they sold it and they gave the proceeds to whoever had need. That was how they lived. Go check Acts chapter 2. I think it's 42 through 48. And then go look in Acts chapter 4 towards the end of that chapter. And you're going to find the exact same thing. Where did they get that from? We're going to read it here in Luke chapter 12, 32 through 34 in a passage in which... Many people try to reason away and write off to say that it's not a prescriptive passage. It's just a descriptive passage. Well, I'm going to tell you that I disagree with that. I think it is very much so a prescriptive. And the reason why we see it describing the early church is because they saw it as prescriptive. I'm getting the cart before the horse. Let me read this. Not that I'm speaking of being in need... For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. So what is Paul immediately beginning to break down this context of? Being in need and not being in need. He's not talking about wealth and abundance as a typical American fleshly perspective would be. He's talking about I've got my needs provided for and I don't. And either way... I've learned how to be content. And here's what he goes, goes on to say. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. Again, understanding that if you're going to look at this in your flesh, in a typical American perspective, you're going to think abound is going to be this luxurious, self-indulgent lifestyle. I've got everything I've ever wanted, not just need, but wanted. And that's not what Paul stated, I don't believe. He says, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. Abundance. Abundance. And need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. As I love that passage because that passage has such a huge blanket that it covers. I can do all things, everything in which the gospel has commissioned me to do in this life. I can do every single thing that God has commissioned me through Christ by the grace of God and the spirit that he equips me with in order to be able to fulfill that. I can do anything and everything that God has ordained for me to do through the person of Jesus Christ in the image of the cross of Christ. So let's look at what Paul talks about his life look like. And I understand that this is just one passage, but it's one passage that's in the litany of many passages that describe the life of Paul. And when you understand the character of Paul, the mission that Paul lived, and the fervency in which Paul lived that mission, then you're going to understand that Paul did not live this life by any means in a luxurious, self-indulgent way. In fact, it was quite the opposite. Let's look what he says. Starting in verse 9 of 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he says this, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as a last of all. Now, he's not even referencing himself. He's now referencing all 12 apostles. I mean, technically, you could say 13 because there is 12. And then Paul was added as an apostle. He wasn't one of the original ones. He was added as an apostle. But he says, all of the apostles, that God has exhibited us as the sent ones, the messengers, the ones who go before everybody else in order to present the gospel and the example of the gospel. He says, all of us, every single one of us apostles, God has exhibited us as last of all, though we're first, we're last. And he says, like men sentenced to death. Okay, so as I read through this list, I want you to see there's a way that the world was looking at the church of Corinth and there's a way the world was looking at the apostles. And they weren't the same. And that's what Paul's trying to extract from this passage. He says, look, the world is looking at you, church of Corinth, and they think that you've got everything you want. But the world's looking at us as men send us to death, as last of all as the scum of the earth. Do you see a problem with that? Is what Paul's trying to tell them. He's trying to admonish them. And if that makes them a little ashamed. Of their lifestyle. Then so be it. Though that's not his intent. His intent is to admonish them into the image of Jesus Christ. But right now they're not living it. Because they're of the flesh. Go read the chapter right before it. In 1 Corinthians 1-3. They're selfish. They're, they're fleshly. They're indulgent. Everything's about them. That's what infants do. But Paul's trying to urge them to become men. Who give up childish ways, as he urges them in 1 Corinthians 13. Here's what he says. We have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. Basically meaning we're theater, we're entertainment. We're on display for the world to see and they're laughing at us. We are fools for Christ's sake. On his behalf, for his name, we are considered by the world as fools. But you are wise in Christ? He said, the world's looking at you as if like you've got it all together. You've got it all figured out. You're part of the Joel Osteen group. People look at you as like, man, God must be blessing you because you've got the millions. You've got the thriving ministry. I'm going to read something in Luke 6, 20 through 26. I'm going to show you what Jesus thought about those who have a thriving ministry in a fleshly, worldly sense. He says, we are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor. But we in disrepute, to the present hour, we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become, remember, all the apostles, the examples, the front runners, the ones who are supposed to be setting the image of how Christ set an image for them. And that makes sense in a second when you get to 16. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. He says, this is what our life looked like. To the present hour, he says, this is how we live our life. We're hungry. We're thirsty. We're homeless. We're buffeted. We're persecuted. And you know what? When we are, we bless people. We don't revile them. And the world considers us scum. And he says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And then listen to this. I urge you then, be imitators of me. What is Paul telling them? That's exactly what it says. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. You see, right now, you're walking in a worldly sense because you're of the flesh. You're infants in Christ. Your position is in Christ. You're saved, but you're of the flesh. And that's how you're living. And I'm writing to you, I'm reproving you to imitate me because my life doesn't look like yours. None of the apostles' lives look like yours. We were on mission. It's a far cry from saying that Paul knows how to abound in excess, in wealth, and how to be in need. And how to lack those things. It's a far cry from what he says about his own life and the lives of all the apostles. It's a far cry from it. James chapter 2, verse 5. And I want you to see what he says here. Now this is James who's stating this. And this this is scripture. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Did you catch what he said? You see, what makes us rich in God's eyes is the fact that we have faith. And when our faith is growing abundantly, well, those are the riches and the treasures that God says are precious to him. And they should be precious to us. But what does James chapter 2 say? Has not God chosen? This is His methodology. This is His blueprint. God is the one who has stated, if you live in this life in luxury and self-indulgence, your faith will be the exact opposite. You will be poor in faith. But if you choose to live simply, regardless of how much is coming into your bank account, because that's not what matters. It's not about what's coming in that defines you. It's about what's going out. That defines you and how it's going out. Are you spending it primarily on yourself? Or are you seeking to find ways to bless other people with it? You see, it doesn't matter. If you make the millions, that's not... I mean, what matters is, I guess, how you make those millions. But say God just deposits that and says, Hey, I want you to be faithful with this and I want you to steward it. and I want you to go invest it. Not as, a, as what Matthew 25, the parables of the talents talk about. That's not a money passage. That's actually about faith and grace. God gives you the gift of faith and of salvation and of grace. He gives that to you as a gift and he's given that and planted that in your heart. And what you choose to do with that will determine where you go in the end. This is why the first two, they invested to get more faith and more grace and to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. And they reaped a Reward. And God says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And then the third one sat on it. He didn't do anything with it. He probably lived it up, ate, drank, and was merry in this world. He didn't do anything with what God gave to him and what happened to him. He went to hell. We don't go to hell based off of how we steward money. It's another big misconception. Maybe that'll be another one I go through, the parable of the talents. It has nothing to do with money. That's just the example that God is trying to use to teach us something. James chapter 5, 1 through 5. Here's what he says here. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Now, I want you to notice he's referencing you. Which means that the you is indicative of who he's writing to. And that's a very important point. Because if you go all the way back to the beginning of chapter James. He says to the 12 tribes in the dispersion greetings. And he calls them brothers. And he goes on and he talks about how the promises that God's going to give to those who have faith. And that it must not be a double minded man. And he, excuse me. He talks about, again, them being beloved and being part of the brotherhood. As he says in verse 16, my beloved brothers. Brothers. In 19, know this, my beloved brothers. These are words and phrases that are used for the church. And then he says again in chapter 5, verse 1. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth he's talking to the church. I thought I was just supposed to be content in the midst of my self-indulgence and luxury. And I'm good. No, you missed the point of what Paul's actually stating in Philippians 4.12. He says, Their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence, which, by the way, neither of those two represent a cross. It is impossible to be dwelling in luxury and self-indulgence and be bearing a cross. It's impossible. As we're going to look in Luke 9.23. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person who does not resist you. Meaning that the one who is a Christian is not going to resist them to try to spare their own life. Why? Well, it's because of what Luke 9.23-25 through 25 says. And let me turn to that real quick. Because here's what he talks about. Luke 9:23 through 25 says this remember what i just said the righteous person does not resist you he doesn't care about his life he doesn't care about what he can store up in this life all he cares about is pleasing the one who enlisted him to serve Luke 9:23 through 25 and he said to all if anyone would come after me let him deny himself Okay, that doesn't sound like luxury and self-indulgence. It says, deny himself and take up his cross daily. That means every day you get up and you die to yourself like what Paul talked about when he says, I die daily. That every day you live this life on mission, not for what you can accumulate in this life, but for what you can expend for him and his glory. You see, Americans have distorted this concept. And it's all throughout now because now out in Nigeria, you have these pastors who are worth millions and millions of dollars and they are taking money. As Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 11, they are robbing churches. And I say they're wolves in sheep's clothing. And you know where a lot of that was propagated from? From America. Because we think In a twisted, perverted sense of what grace really is, what Jude says, I wrote to you to contend, I wanted to write to you about our common salvation, but I found it more necessary to contend for the faith. Because there's people who have crept into the church who have perverted what it really means to be a Christian and what it looks like to be a Christian. And no longer do we walk in the image of Christ by the cross of Christ, we walk in the image of what we think Christianity is. And we just say, praise God for saving me and blessing me so that I can live this nice life. Because those are the blessings of God. I'm just going to tell you, that is not in Scripture. And you might say, go back to the Old Testament, Dwight. Go read the Old Testament. Go see what God promised back then. Yeah, and how'd that work out for the Jews? And I'm going to encourage you to find the distinction between the physical aspect of the Old Testament and the spiritual reality of the New Testament. Zach Poonin is a guy that that I've listened to several times and he made a very, I think, stark contrast between the two. He says, in the Old Testament, you will always find men wrestling with men, but never with demons. In the New Testament, you will not find men wrestling with men. You will find men wrestling with demons. Why? Because the Old Testament is physical. The New Testament is spiritual. Therefore, if you try to interpret the Old Testament in a physical, natural manner as being a Christian who's born of the Spirit, you're going to get off. You're going to be totally off on your doctrine. You're going to think that your obedience will mean riches and long life. Let me just ask you something. Did it mean riches and long life for Jesus who obeyed God perfectly? Think about it. Jesus' life was cut short brutally at 30, uh, 33 years old and a death on the cross. He didn't get prosperous ease. He didn't get blessings in the sense that we think of today as material wealth. And he obeyed God better than anybody ever. And he became our example. So Luke 9, 23, I pray that this is actually resonating with you. He says, if you want to come after Jesus, if you, want to, if you want to follow him, as he's about to say, then you're going to have to pick up the cross of self-denial and make it not about you in this life. And you go and you sacrifice. I once had a pastor who told me, he says, okay, how much do I, do I really have to give? And I said, you just expose your heart to me. There's so a church we used to go back in Forney and I had the conversation with the guy and he was accusing me of, part of a poverty, being part of a poverty gospel. And while I disagree with the sentiment of a poverty gospel, that means that um, in the sense that I have to be poor um, and without everything in this life in order to somehow gain my righteous standing before God apart from faith. I disagree with that. But I'm going to tell you that if you truly have a heart for God, then you're going to be in line with what John 3.16 says. For God so loved the world that he gave. And that's going to be your aim. And so this pastor asked me, he said, how much do I, do I have to give to be given enough? And I said, you just showed me your heart, Paul. You just told me your heart. Put it right there on a silver platter for me to see that your heart is not right before the Lord. So just as it was in Acts whenever Simon the magician wanted something from Peter and said, hey, give this to me. And Peter's like, your heart is not right before him. How do I know his heart wasn't right? Because the heart that's reflective of God's heart is not going to ask how much do I have to give? It's how much can I give? It's how much can I give for the one who gave all to me? It's not what can I store up? You see, when you have a cross on your shoulder, it does not signify luxury or self-indulgence in any way. I want you to go think about the cross and Jesus Christ being tortured and bloody on that jagged wood. And if you could go back to that moment in time, is there anything about that scene that would scream self-indulgence and luxury and prosperous ease? And he says, and if you want to follow me, that's what you got to put on your shoulder. He goes on and he says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Verse 25. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? What is it, what does it profit you if you gain this whole world? And you lose your soul because you aren't actually following Jesus. Luke chapter 6, 20 through 26, and I'm right at the 29 minute mark, so I'm going to try to quickly go through this. He says this, starting in verse 20, this is Jesus stating this, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and he said, blessed are you who are poor, remember James 2, 5, has not God chosen those who are poor in this world, meaning those who live just a simple life, I'm not saying you don't have your necessities there. What I'm saying is is that you're not living in indulgence and self self indulgence and, and luxury. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied blessed are you who weep now for you shall laugh blessed are you when people hate you when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the son of man rejoice in that day and leap for joy for behold your reward is great in heaven for so their fathers did to the prophets he said if you're living your best life now then you're going to be found wanting in the next This what he says in the next one in verse 24 But woe to you who are rich in this world. For you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now. For you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now. For you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. I don't know if it gets much more clear than that. We can try. Luke chapter 12, 32 through 34. You see, the Christian heart is revealed not by what we gain, but by what we give. That's what identifies. If you are storing up things for yourself, then you are showing me that your heart is not fully in heaven. If you're accumulating stuff in this life for yourself, and it's all about what you can get out of this life and not about what you can give for him. You're showing me your heart. And I don't say that. Jesus does. Luke twelve thirty two through 34. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with the treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What is he stating? Exactly what he said. If your treasures are evidenced here in this life, and you've got the fancy cars, and you've got the fancy houses, And you've got all fancy possessions that go in that house and everything you do in this life is to accumulate more for yourself, to live a nice, luxurious life. Then that's where your heart is. Jesus is saying it very point blank. Doesn't matter what comes into your bank account. What matters is where it goes. That's what defines a Christian. And if most of your money, if you live by this 80-10-10 method, I just think that's ridiculous, honestly. Nothing about a cross. That sounds really good to my flesh. 10% to the church, 10% in savings, and 80% for myself. Man, that sounds really good. And I'm going to tell you, you won't find that in Scripture. Not in the new covenant in reflection of the cross of Christ. The very thing that's supposed to be on our shoulders and the only thing that's required in order to follow Him well. As Luke 9.23 said, let me, let me break it down for you in this way, just real quick. There's a word in Scripture in the New Testament called prosper or prosperity, prosperous, whatever way you're going to throw that out there. But what many people don't know is that there's actually two words in the Greek that define this word. And the distinction between those two words is very important. One, you have "yodu" is the Greek word, and it means to help for the journey. It appears three times in Scripture. One of them being in Third John 1, 2, where it says that above all, I pray that you may prosper. Or in Romans 1, chapter 10, or I'm sorry, yeah, in Romans 1, verse 10, it talks about the same concept about prospering. But here's, here's the deal. It means help for the journey. It's, it's think about it in terms of a knapsack. And I don't know if you're familiar with the knapsack, but back in the olden days, if a person was going on a journey, they would take this bandana or this cloth that would maybe be three feet wide, four feet wide, something like that. And they would take that, maybe it's a burlap sack or whatever it would be, and they would put what they needed for that journey for them to be successful on that journey. And they would wrap it up, tie it up, and then put a stick through that where the loop part is and they would carry it on their shoulder on their journey. And as they needed food, they would take what food they needed. But it was something that you couldn't carry a whole lot of stuff. You had to carry what you needed for the journey to be successful and to have your needs met. That's what he means here by help for the journey. In order for you to be successful, God knows your needs. Your job is to seek first his kingdom, not yours, but his and his righteousness And the things that you need in this life, the food, drink, clothing, necessities of life, the bios of life, using the Greek word there, that which would cause you to be able to sustain life. God's promised it if you seek first his kingdom. I'm just telling you what the word says. Three times that word is used as prosper, at least in the ESV. Three times that Greek word iados is used in scripture, in the text. There's another word, pluteo, that's used 12 times in the scripture. And while this can have a connotation of spiritual wealth, depending on the context of the passage, and you've got to be very careful as to how you interpret that. At least eight to nine times, this verse is very clearly referencing an abundance of wealth. And it is almost always, if not always, when it is referencing an abundance of material wealth or worldly possessions, it is always used in a negative context. Let me give you an example. In mm-hmm. Revelation chapter three, verse 17. Now, those of you who are scholars of the text, you might understand exactly where this is going because you know what Revelation chapter three talks about. is the church in Laodicea. And here's what he says. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot, Basically meaning they're double-minded. They have one foot in heaven. They have one foot in this world. They're living it up. And they're trying to do so on both categories. He says, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That's a violent upheaval. That's a vomiting. It's something that had to be ingested for them to have to be expelled. It's not just Jesus Jesus tasting them and being like, oh, that doesn't taste good. That's not good. So I'm just going to kind of spit you out. This is something that has now been part of him. It's been ingested. He's tasted and seen. And because that what he ingested or became part of him is choosing to live a double-minded worldly life with one foot in heaven and one foot in earth. This is what James 1 talks about the double-minded man. This two-spirited, dipsuchos is the Greek word. It means that you have a spirit of this world and you have the spirit of heaven and you're trying to go between both. And he says, you're doing these things and so I'm gonna vomit you out, but listen carefully what he says. For you say, I am rich, I have ploteo, I have prospered, I have need of nothing. So why is Jesus upset with them? Because they don't need Jesus anymore. They have everything they want in this world. They have prospered. They've become rich. They've become wealthy. And they've forgotten their need for Jesus. Because they're living it up in this world. You see, that's the danger. It's what First Timothy chapter 6 is all about. About the person who desires to be rich falls into temptations that pierces him with many pangs. It's not the money that is the problem. It's what you choose to do with it that that reveals your heart and your greatest treasure. If your greatest treasure is Jesus, then you'll you'll pour it out on Him. If your greatest treasure is yourself, then you're going to pour it out on you. If your greatest treasure is your family, then you're going to pour it out on your family. Even if it means at the expense of Jesus. If Jesus is your greatest treasure, then you will use the money that He gives to you towards your greatest treasure. It's very simple. We've just convoluted it today. We've made it muddy and foggy in the pulpits today. We don't teach just the black and white truth text. I had a conversation with a guy the other day when it came down to divorce and remarriage. and. And he's like, you know, if, if if it's if it's up to me, I, I lean a little bit more towards permanence for like until death does you part. But really, you know what? It's there, you can make a case either way. And I'm like, okay, I disagree. I think that the gray areas in scripture, when it comes down to practical living, I think we would have to be, we'd have to think God's pretty foolish to say I want you to live a certain way, but I'm going to make it so convoluted that you're never going to even be able to decide. What really pleases me and what doesn't? That's just actually pretty foolish to think. Study to show yourself approved before God. He is going to show us in his word the black and white practical life applications for us to please him. And divorce and remarriage is no different. The reason it's a gray area is because we haven't actually searched it out in truth and humility through the spirit of God to find out the black and the white. So this guy says this to me and I said, you know what? I disagree with you. I believe the word is clear. It isn't until death does you part covenant. As I talked about in one of my previous podcasts. And here's the problem. When you don't take a position according to the word of God. Interpreted in its fullness. And you're telling somebody. Oh, except in the case of sexual morality, Like what Matthew 5 talks about. Not understanding what Jesus is even referencing there. You are now leading people on something as serious as a marriage covenant. You are leading them to a direction that is not congruent with God's holy standard. And that is problematic. In the same way, we have got to understand what the text states on this and start preaching the black and white aspects of the text. Instead of dancing back and forth on it and not being willing to take a stand. So this concept, you know, I, I, let me actually turn to one of these, that word pluteo that's used there. You see it in Revelation chapter three, and I'm going to also show you another one that's in Luke one fifty-three to give you an example of what I'm referencing here of how this word is used. But in Luke one fifty-three, he says, he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich or the prosperous, the pluteo he has sent away empty. He says how this word is used in a negative light in which he says, if this is your pursuit, if you're seeking to prosper and have an abundance, for one, you have the cross not on your shoulder, but two, he's going to send you away empty. And that's a dangerous proposition when it comes to God. I want to be the one who gets filled with good things. And he says, that's going to come to the hungry. The ones who are actually not filling themselves up with the things of this world, but are filling themselves up with the things of heaven. You see, in first uh, sorry, in, in Philippians 4 verse 12, here's what Paul's stating. that whether he has his needs met or he has to trust the Lord to provide for his needs, he's learned to be content either way, because to him, Jesus is enough. He doesn't have to get his fill of this world. Jesus is enough. 1 John two fifteen through 17 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. For the one who loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Maybe you should go read that yourself. And I pray the Lord would give you eyes to see what His Spirit is teaching. Because it goes on, He says, For the pride of life and the pride of the eyes, the lust of the eyes or the lust of the flesh, it says those things are not from the Father, they're from the world. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. You see, if you love the things of this world and you're trying to build up your treasures and you're like, oh no, God loves me and, and, but I love this world too and let me just say that when God gives me this world that it's actually God blessing me and I'm just going to tell you that I don't believe that's the case. Luke 4, Matthew 4, Jesus is, is up there on this mountain and, and Satan shows him all the glory of all this world and all the riches and all the power and all the prestige and all the things this world can offer him. And he says, it's been given to me to give to whoever would bow their knee to me. And Jesus responded, and said, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. You see, First John 5 tells us that Satan is the God of this world. And I fully believe that Satan's telling the truth right there, that those things, the things of this world have been given to Satan. It's at his disposal to give to whoever would worship him. And so I guess the, the bulk of this message, and the full text of what it, what is being stated in the cross of Christ, and the image of Christ, and the image of the apostles is, which God are you serving? Like in all seriousness, who are you bowing the knee to? Which God are you serving? Because if you're serving the God of heaven, your treasures are going to be there, and it's going to be reflective by how you live this life. But maybe, indirectly and unben- and, and, and not, uh, not even known to your conscience, you've been bowing the knee to Satan. You didn't even know it. but You've been bowing the knee to Him. Maybe it's time you stop. Because if you really do love the Lord with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, your life will begin to match up to His in light of the cross of Christ. I oftentimes, I'll end it with this, I oftentimes relate it to this. If my... Pantry is supplied or if it's barren. This is what Paul is referencing in Philippians four twelve. Is if I've got food in my pantry and I've got my needs met, that which will sustain my breathing, my livelihood. You know what? I don't have to have a seventy thousand dollar car to sustain my livelihood. I don't need to have a $600,000 house to sustain my livelihood. The needs of life is what Paul is referencing in Philippians 4, 10 through 12. And whether he has his needs met and he's got a well-supplied pantry... Where he doesn't have to worry about where his next meal is coming from. Maybe he doesn't have to worry about where his next week's worth of food is coming from. He is well supplied. And it's not something that he has to trust in the Lord each and every day for his next meal. That he doesn't even know what's coming like George Mueller. When he had the orphans, like about a hundred of them, sit down at a table and they had nothing in their pantry. And he was content. And he had them sit down as if God was going to, had already provided the meal. And he just simply prays and he just says, God, I know you'll take care of us because we're seeking your will above all else. And then there's this knock on the door. And it's the, 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 the local baker. Says that God woke him up at 2 o'clock in the morning. And said, I needed to bake some bread for you guys. I don't even know why, but I just got up and I just started baking some bread. Can you use it? George Mueller's like, Absolutely. Praise the Lord. He didn't have anything in his pantry. Other people were freaking out. What are we going to do, George? We don't have any food for these orphans. God will provide. You see, he was content even in the lack of need. And as soon as he gets the bread delivered, then another knock on the door comes. And it's a guy who has a milk truck as he's on his route for delivering this milk and he breaks a wheel right in front of George's orphanage. And he says, I can't fix this with all the weight. Could you take some of this milk and use it or it's going to go spoiled? So I can fix my wagon and keep going. George is like, absolutely. Praise the Lord. He just gave us our food and our drink. Just as he promised he would. So whether your pantry is filled. Or whether your pantry is barren. Blessed be the name of the Lord. For he has already filled our greatest need, and with that we are content. That need has nothing to do with me and my belly, it has nothing to do with me and drink, it has everything to do with the need of which my soul was depraved and void and in need of a savior. And he provided that, and because of that, I can live this life in contentment, whether my needs are supplied. Or whether my needs are not supplied. And I have to trust him in that moment for it to be provided. So please, as you go through Philippians 4, 10-12, maybe you're somebody who teaches this. Please stop teaching that this is meaning to self-indulgently abound. The text is not congruent. It is That premise is a fleshly, worldly premise to try to push an agenda of worldliness and as we've already seen in 1 John 2:15 through 17 a person who is worldly does not have the love of the father with them essentially what he's stating is you cannot love this world and you cannot love the father because in Matthew six twenty four, it's exactly, what it says, you cannot serve two masters. You'll hate the one and love the other. You'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. And one of the biggest culprits in the church today, people who think that they're devoted to Christ while their lives show that they're more devoted to this world than they are to him. Their jobs come before their devotion to Christ. Their families come before their devotion to Christ. Not even realizing 1 Corinthians 7, 29 says, in which Paul says, the appointed time has going short from now, on." those who have wives live as though they had none. <clears throat> Not even realizing Luke 14, I think it starts in roughly around verse 14, going through 27, people who use their family as an excuse to say that's their first ministry. That's the first area of concern for them. That's an excuse. And he says, you're not worthy of my kingdom. Going into 26 to 27 even. If anyone does not come to me and hate their father, mother, brother, sister, wife, and children, yes, even their own life, they cannot be my disciple. I want you to understand this premise that I'm talking about today in Philippians 10 through 12 and the concept of needs and self-denial and taking up a cross, it goes way beyond than just the, the blanket matter of wealth. He says, if you don't even hate your own life in comparison to how much you love Jesus, you can't be his disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross cannot be my disciple. So if you are living a self-indulgent lifestyle as opposed to a self-denying lifestyle, You can't be his disciple, let alone follower, because those two things are two different things. I don't know what else to say for you. I know when it comes down to my stance on um, America, on salvation, and on money, those are the three things that get me the greatest pushback and persecution, is when I teach the standard of the text here in America when I touch on those three things and what the Bible teaches on it, those are the three biggest things that I get the greatest pushback at. And you know why? Because those are three of the biggest things that are the biggest idols today in the church. And people don't like when you take their household idols. But that's the life of a Christian. Y'all be blessed.